The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that now after having a, had a chance to adore you and to confess our sin and to give an offering to you and to pray to you and to hear teaching from the entirety of your word on what it is that you are on your nature, Father, I pray now that you would bless us as we seek to be further instructed by your word today in the Easter story. I pray, Father, that you would cause me to preach this clearly and well by your Spirit, that you would cause each of us to listen well by your Spirit, to understand your word, and to be rightly impacted by it. I pray, Father, that the exact same way that you, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, changed the disciples, I pray that you would change us like that this morning. Cause what happened to them to happen to us. Cause us to be filled with great joy. Cause us to worship you, Jesus. Cause us to praise you, Father. Let that be the impact of us experiencing the Easter story again this morning. Please do this for your glory. Do this out of your love for us and for your name's sake, for your praise, and so that you might compel us to follow you well so we might be motivated to obey you, especially over the next several weeks as we look at, at, at many ways that, that you call us as your people to, to live in ways that in, in many cases are, are different from how we see your people living in the New Testament. I pray, Father, that you would cause us to have hearts that are ready to obey, that you would fill us with the joy and the worship and the praise this morning that we ought to have in light of your resurrection and that you would compel us to obey you accordingly. All of this we pray you would do by your Spirit. It's impossible apart from your Spirit, so we rely on you for that right now. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you're not in Luke 24, you can go ahead and turn there now. I want to ask you before we begin, why are you here this morning? I'm not asking that in the motivational sense, as in like, what's your, what's your motivation for being here? I know that's always a good question to ask, ask as well. I'm asking, why are you here today? Why are we gathered to do this on Sunday? Why not Monday? Or why not yesterday on Saturday? Why are we gathered on the first day of the week? Christians have been gathering on Sundays now for a couple thousand years. And there might be a few different reasons why Christians have gathered on Sunday. One, one might be because the Jews met in the synagogue on Saturday. But one reason, uh, very likely, is because Sunday is the Lord's Day. Sunday is the day of the week in human history that Jesus rose from the dead. And so on this day now, for 2,000 years, the church has been gathering on this, on this very day of the week, and even this morning, as we're gathered here, we're joined by millions and millions of people around the world gathered to worship God, to worship Christ, right here on this day of the week because something happened historically in human history on this day, on Sunday. Incredible. In fact, if there were no resurrection, if this thing didn't happen on Sunday, there would be no Christianity at all. You would not be here. There would be no church. We would not be gathered to worship God like this. By the way, that in and of itself is a very compelling argument historically for the, uh, for, for the resurrection. It's very difficult to explain the origin of the Christian faith if there is no such thing as a resurrection. If Jesus stayed dead, if he didn't change, very difficult to explain all of this. But what was it that happened exactly on that Easter Sunday so long ago? I hope this morning that through Luke's ancient biography of Jesus, 
you're going to have a chance to travel back through time, through the pages of his gospel, and to experience the Easter story anew. And my hope, my prayer for us this morning, is that we'll be changed the same way that we see the disciples changed. That we will rejoice and worship the divine Messiah. That's the point of the sermon. Rejoice and worship the divine Messiah. Jesus is the divine Messiah resurrected from the dead. We're going to consider the Easter story in two ways this morning. First, how Jesus changed. And second, how Jesus changed his disciples. First, how Jesus changed. And second, how Jesus changed them. Let's look first at how Jesus changed, point number one. You know, we spent six weeks now in the Gospel of Luke. As uh, Pastor Keith mentioned a little bit earlier, we don't normally preach like this. We normally take a book of the Bible and we work through it passage by passage and, uh, and, and, and we seek to exposit the Word of God. But over the past six weeks, we've done something different. We've been uh, doing a mini-series in the Gospel of Luke where we've dipped our paintbrushes. Uh, we've dipped our paintbrush in various passages from Luke's Gospel, and we're trying to paint for ourselves a portrait of Jesus. The goal of this mini-series has been to know Jesus, knowing Jesus. And we've experienced Jesus now as the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. We saw that when he healed the paralyzed man. We've experienced Jesus as a true friend of sinners, we saw that he went even to the despised and notorious sinners of his day to seek and to save them as a good shepherd to lost and perishing sheep. We've experienced him as the fisher of men who calls disciples to himself to participate in his eternal catch. We saw him as the child born on Christmas Day, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. We saw him as the great rabbi who upheld love for God and love for neighbor as the most important ethical principle and as the path to eternal life. And then last week we saw him as the suffering king who suffered unjustly under the forces of darkness in accordance with the will of God so that his death could bring salvation or deliverance for his people and to initiate a new covenant. But it's amazing. Our story last week ended with this man, this incredible man, being killed. It ended with his body being placed in a tomb. It's an incredible thought to realize that Jesus was dead, truly dead, fully dead. His corpse, wrapped in cloth, placed into a tomb. Incredible. Cold body, no life. That man, dead. I want you to do something that's going to be important for how we're going to consider this first point, how Jesus changed. I want you to think of a funeral that you've been to recently. Ideally, a funeral of somebody that you cared about or that you were close with. And I want you, as you think about that, to remember what it was like to stand in front of their open casket. What was it like to look at their body, to see this person that you cared about lying there, lifeless, you know, sometimes people talk about death as if, it's, as if it's natural, as if it's a part of life. But that is so not true. Death is incredibly unnatural. And when you're standing there and you're looking at that person's dead body, even when they're dressed nice and they're covered in makeup, there's something very disturbing about it. Because this person that you love, that you know, is now laying there, their body is laying there lifeless. And it's not just disturbing 
to see them like that. It's also disturbing to consider the fact that one day, people are going to be looking at you just like you're looking at them. That one day you're going to be in a casket and your friends are going to be gathered around looking at your body. Your friends are going to be there at your funeral. And just like them, you're going to go down into that grave. The casket's going to be sealed and the dirt's going to be plodding down on top of your casket. That's going to be you. You see it for them. You see it for you. That's your fate. Now I want you to keep that in your mind as we move through here. Because what happened for the disciples was just what you experienced with your friend. Their master, their Messiah, he's the one in the casket. He's dead. It's over. Their hopes were shattered. They expected this to be the king that would deliver Israel and restore them as a people. They thought he was the anointed one, right? That's what Messiah means. They thought he was the anointed one, the king, the heir to David's throne who would finally save Israel, but now he's dead. And for the disciples, that means that this is, it's all over. Right? This is the most tragic way the story could have ended for them. Their king was crucified, and now he's gone. Lifeless, dead body. Their hopes are completely dashed. Now, when we left our story off last week, the preparations for Jesus' burial, they weren't finished yet, at least not to the liking of some of the women that had followed him from Galilee. And so after the women had rested on the Sabbath day, they went back to Jesus' tomb to finish preparing his body with the perfumes and, uh, and spices that they, had, that, they had, uh, that they had put together. And of course, when they get there, as you heard this morning, something incredible happens. They go into the tomb, and Jesus' body isn't there. It's gone. And they see two angels dressed in clothes that are gleaming like lightning. And the angels say to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen. The women are amazed. They're frightened first to see the angels. And then they run back and tell the 11 disciples and the others who are with them. And how did they respond? Did they rejoice? Verse 11, they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Of course they seem like nonsense. <laughs> when you read this, you can't, you can't read it with the knowledge of the Easter story that we have today, right? The good news, it was breaking news back then. It hadn't been published yet. The women are the first ones to, to pass on this information about Jesus being risen. This would have been insane for them to hear. It's an absurd thing to imagine somebody saying. Imagine if you're the disciples, you hear the women talking about angels, Jesus alive. Come on, ladies. Ridiculous. But that same Sunday, two of them, two of them who heard the news of the women, they're walking to a village called Emmaus, and they're visited by an unexpected traveler who we know as the resurrected Jesus himself. Verse 16 says that they were kept from recognizing that it was Jesus. But the stranger starts talking with them. He hears them discussing what had happened in Jerusalem with the death of Jesus of Nazareth and then the amazing news of the women. And the stranger says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's amazing how much the stranger knew the scriptures so well. 
The stranger implies the Messiah has died and that the Messiah has entered his glory. That means he's been exalted to God's right hand and all this was necessary to fulfill the scriptures. Of course, you know the story. It wasn't until later that they're breaking bread together as Christians do in the Lord's Supper, that their eyes are opened and they recognize him and then Jesus disappears from their sight. He vanishes. The two men, they immediately return to Jerusalem, which is about seven miles away. They go back to the 11 disciples and to those who are with them. And when they get there, they hear them talking about how Jesus has also appeared to Peter. And then they start talking about Jesus, how Jesus had appeared to them. Two appearances of Jesus alive after his death, all presumably on that Sunday after his death, Easter Sunday, this very day of the week. And then, verse 36, while they were talking about this, either the two disciples talking about what they heard or the group discussing it, it says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus just appears in their presence. He had vanished in front of the two disciples earlier, and now he reappears. He shows up in the room where all of his disciples are gathered. And he greets them. He says, peace be with you. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They're terrified. They think they're seeing a ghost, maybe a ghost of Jesus. I'd be afraid of seeing a ghost, wouldn't you? To see some kind of, I mean, imagine that, to see some kind of supernatural phenomena that you don't, you don't understand, that you can't explain. You have no idea what, what this ghost can do, what he might do to you. I want you to imagine that person again that we were just talking about earlier of a funeral that you've, that you've attended recently. Of course, you would, you would rejoice in time to see them again, but imagine how terrifying it would be if tonight you were eating dinner and, and you turned around, you heard that person say, you know, hello to you from behind you, and you turned around and they're just, they're there in your, in your kitchen or in your dining room. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be to see a dead person like that again behind you? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Jesus says to his disciples, Why are you afraid? Why are you doubting? They're doubting that it's actually him. (laughs) That he's actually present in the flesh. This is not just an apparition of Jesus or the spirit of Jesus or something like that. Jesus' question is rhetorical. He's saying you shouldn't doubt. Look at my hands and feet. Now Luke doesn't mention anything about the nails on the cross. He doesn't mention that in his crucifixion account. He doesn't mention that here. And probably what he means is that you know, Jesus is showing them his hands and feet as in you know, these are the body parts that are coming out of his garments. And he's showing them you know, that he has a body. Uh, he's saying that you know, a ghost or a spirit doesn't have a body. It doesn't have hands and feet. It doesn't have flesh and bones. And then Jesus invites them to come to see him and to touch him. This, of course, is overwhelming for Jesus' followers. They don't believe it. It's too good to be true. Right? Their joy keeps them back from accepting what their eyes are seeing. You can imagine what it would be like if, if a lawyer came up to you later this afternoon, and told you that you had a, uh, a distant relative who was extremely wealthy, and they recently passed away, 
their inheritance was worth around $500 million, and somehow it worked out strangely in their trust that about half of that was going to be coming to you. That'd be very hard to believe, wouldn't it? Too good to be true, right? Now imagine what it would be like for that person that you pictured earlier, whose funeral you went to and whose dead body you saw in a casket. Imagine what it would be like to have them back again, to see them in your living room tonight talking with you. The joy would be overwhelming, and it would likely be very, very hard to believe. Too good to be true. For the disciples, it wasn't just joyous because they missed him, because they thought they would never see him again, right? But for them, it, I mean, their hopes had been dashed in his death. The one that they thought was the, that they had put all of their, that they had you know, uh, given their lives over to, the one they thought was the Messiah, he had, he had died. But now he's back. This, this changes everything. In verse 41, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? He's going to provide them further proof that he is really here. He's here in the flesh. In verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He took the fish, he chewed it in his mouth with his teeth, he swallowed it, it went down his esophagus into his stomach, right? This is no ghost. This is not a spirit of Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus in the flesh. The same Jesus who was crucified on a cross just days earlier on Passover, on Friday, what we call Good Friday, is now standing in their presence on Easter Sunday alive. Amazing. How did Jesus change? How did he change? Well, he changed from being dead to being alive again. Jesus has been bodily restored from death. He has been resurrected. Now, the significance of this for us is even greater than you might assume initially. You know why? It's amazing. The Bible teaches one of the reasons why Jesus' physical bodily resurrection is so glorious for us is because the Bible says that his resurrection means your resurrection. If you're in Jesus, how he changed is how you will change. We were at my grandma's house for a community group on Wednesday night, and I was looking out in their backyard, and I noticed that their apple tree had a lot of apples on it. And uh, I, I think I had said something about how, oh, you know, when apples are ready, we can have Abby and Ellie come over, and, you know, they would love to pick them for you. And she had talked about how they're not quite ready yet. Um, and, uh, you know, you can tell when apples are, are ripe and ready to be picked. Uh, the first few apples that, are, that, that ripen, that turn red, that are ready to be picked, they're an indication that more apples are going to be ripe soon. And the quality of those apples might even tell you something about how good the rest of the apples are going to be. Jesus is the first apple off the tree. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died. 
He says, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This is incredible. You realize what Paul is saying, right? He's saying that if you belong to Jesus, if you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in him, then you will be made alive just like he was. You'll be made alive through him. When he comes again in glory, you will be changed the way he was changed. You will be physically, bodily restored to life just like the disciples saw him on that first Easter Sunday, this very day of the week so many years ago, you too will be raised just like he was. It's incredible. Death is inevitable, right? You are all going to die. We are all going to die. There is a definite point in time you could, if you knew it, you could determine the hours from now, a specific number of hours from now, where your body will be lifeless. Your heart will stop beating. Your lungs will stop breathing. Your eyes will stop seeing. Just think about that for you. You realize that that is going to happen for you. Don't try and say, oh, you know, I'm, I really hope I'm alive when Jesus comes again. Maybe, but so far that hasn't happened for anybody in the world yet. Might not happen for you, right? Chances are pretty high that you will die. You will die. How do you feel about that? The thought of your body just lifeless. Are you certain of what happens next? There's a lot of different ideas out there. Some are more comforting than others. I really think that the only satisfactory hope in the face of death is the hope that the Bible offers us. And what I mean by that is that you will physically live again. That's the biblical hope. Some people think that Death is the end. Your consciousness, it ends when your body ceases to function. That's it. Everything's over. That's terrifying. Terrifying thought. Some people think that after death, you're reincarnated, that your soul starts a new life in an animal or another human being. Right? Some people think that after death, your spirit goes somewhere else to exist in a non-physical place. Maybe heaven, for example. That's actually what many Christians think, and it's not biblical. That's not true. That's not our state forever. All those expectations pale in comparison to the biblical hope, which is that in Jesus, physical life awaits you again. A new mode of physical bodily life is in store for you. How Jesus changed that Sunday so many years ago, is how you will change if you're in him. Death was not the end for Jesus. Nor was his soul reincarnated into a lion or into a baby somewhere else in the world. His tomb was empty, right? His body is gone. His body's here. It's restored. And he wasn't just alive in a spiritual way, in a spiritual place like heaven. No, Jesus is standing here in the physical world. He shows his disciples his physical hands and his physical feet. He's eating fish after he died. You realize the magnitude of this? 
Just let that hit you for a second. He died, and now he's eating fish again. For Jesus and for you, death is not the end of taste. It's not the end of touch. It's not the end of breathing and jumping and running and laughing. It's not the end of feeling the sun on your skin or of listening to a great piece of music with your ears. It's not the end of seeing your loved one smile. It's not the end of smelling a delicious meal. It's not the end of embracing your friend in a hug. It's not the end of eating fish, right? This is so amazing to know that when you're at a funeral of a brother or sister in Christ, you know that just as Jesus' tomb could not hold him, that just the same way that his grave is empty and his body's gone and he's been restored to physical life again, you know that they will rise too, just like that. They're going to be changed the exact same way that Jesus was changed. That body that you see there dead, lying in the casket, it's going to come back to life. Physically restored. Incredible. And when you're thinking about yourself lying in that casket one day, you imagine yourself going down to the ground, your family members and your friends burying you, you know that you too will rise the same way that Jesus did. Bodily. Back. Not merely resuscitated, as in brought back to life in a broken body only to die again but restored to a perfect, imperishable body. What an amazing hope. Physical, bodily life after death. So how did Jesus change? He was dead, but now he's alive. Resurrection. The crucified Messiah was restored to life in the flesh. In the flesh. And the hope for us, of course, that if you belong to Jesus... The way Jesus changed on Easter Sunday is a foretaste of your future. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first apple off the tree. And when he comes again, you'll be pulled off that tree too. So we've seen how he changed. There's something else about the Easter story that I really want you to see. In the Easter story, Jesus changes his disciples in a few very significant ways. Let's look at that next. Point number two, how he changed them, how Jesus changed them. The first way Jesus changed them is he opened their eyes. He enlightened them. Verse 44, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's the entire Old Testament, by the way. Sometimes the Old Testament was divided up into three categories, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Psalms are, might be standing in here for the writings. Jesus says that everything that was expected, everything that was anticipated, everything that was foretold about me in the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Scriptures, of course, are God's Word. Anything that is said in there is, uh, uh, regarding the future that must be fulfilled in the future is, uh, is, is revelatory of God's plan, of God's decree. It must take place. Now, Jesus had talked with them about this during his earthly ministry. One example was back in Luke 18, when Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. 
They'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. But listen to what Luke says next, verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what Jesus was talking about. Now, you have to understand, first of all, the Jews, they, had, they were expecting a Messiah, okay? But they had no expectation of a Messiah, of a Savior King, who would be crucified, let alone a Messiah who would come back to life again a few days later. That was just not part of the expectation for them. And if it was clear that Jesus was talking about not just a resuscitation, but actually a resurrection to an eternal body, the Jews never would have guessed that. They believed in a resurrection at the end of the age when, when all people would be raised bodily again, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. But this idea of one person being resurrected like that in the course of history, not part of their thought process. Now, in the disciples' case, their lack of understanding, it wasn't just the result of intellectual barriers. For them, there seems to be some kind of spiritual element to it, too. Their blindness was at least in part the product of their sinful nature, maybe of demonic forces, maybe even of God himself. But in the Easter story, Jesus removes those blinders. He removes the veil from their eyes. He enlightens them. They're not going to miss the meaning anymore. It says in verse 45, Jesus then opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He finally enables them to understand. Verse 46, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus, by the way, is not quoting any particular passage here. He's saying that what is written in the Old Testament about him, either explicitly or implicitly, has taken place. Or he's saying that these things, rather, are what are written about him in the Old Testament. What are some examples? Well, Jesus said first that what is written is that the Messiah will suffer. We know that the prophet Isaiah, writing about the servant of Yahweh, who Jesus identifies as himself, would suffer. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, the servant was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished." He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Hundreds of years before Jesus, it was written in the Old Testament that the servant of Yahweh, who Jesus identifies as himself, would suffer. Jesus said, this is what is written, the Messiah will rise from the dead. The meaning of the words written by King David in Psalm 16 were filled up in the resurrection of David's heir. David said in Psalm 16.10, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will yet your faithful one see decay. Not only that, Jesus said, It is written that the Messiah will rise from the dead 
on the third day. When the prophet Hosea called Israel to repent, what was written found a fuller meaning in the restoration of Jesus as he relives Israel's story. Hosea 6, Hosea says, Come, let us return to Yahweh. He has torn to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Lastly, Jesus said that it's written, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the Messiah's name to all nations. Remember, repentance means turning from sin, turning to righteousness. We're all guilty, of course, of disobeying God and dishonoring God. We're all deserving of God's judgment. We all deserve to be resurrected, not to everlasting life, but to everlasting contempt. But according to the scriptures, an opportunity for repentance that results in freedom from guilt would be publicly declared to all people. It was written in Isaiah's prophecy of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 49. God through Isaiah says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, non-Jews, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. When did Jesus do that? When did he bring the message of light to the Gentiles? to non-Jews. He did it through his church. His people are representatives of him. And hence Jesus says that this proclamation would be done in his name. That means it would be done by people acting as his representatives. Through his representatives, in fact, Jesus' light has reached you here today in San Jose, California. All the way on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, Jesus has brought light to you through his representatives, people in his name bringing the message of light. This message, Jesus says, would be proclaimed first in Jerusalem. It was appropriate that the Messiah who was promised for the Jews would be first announced to the Jews in the most important city of the Jews, but it would reach the ends of the world. So, one way Jesus changes his disciples is he opens their mind so that they can understand the scriptures. They finally see that this was written about the Messiah all along. His suffering, his resurrection on the third day, the proclamation of salvation to the nations. They see this about the Messiah clearly. They see that this had to be fulfilled. And of course, they see that this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He is the Messiah. In fact, they have seen these fulfillments in a quite literal way. Verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. They've witnessed it with their own eyes. They're witnesses of his death. They're witnesses now of his resurrection. And Jesus is commissioning them as witnesses. They are to testify to what they have seen. And then Jesus, Jesus promises to empower them for their work of witnessing. He says in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. That is the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That would happen on the day of Pentecost. Jesus was empowered for his ministry by the Spirit. Now his disciples would be empowered by the Spirit for their ministry. And this is how the Christian movement would begin. It would be led 
by commissioned eyewitnesses of the Messiah empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus enlightened his disciples and he commissioned them. Then in verse 50 it says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, which is on the Mount of Olives, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. This might be a farewell blessing. Jesus is requesting God's special favor on his disciples before he departs from them. And then verse 51, when he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. He was brought up to heaven. We might think here of how Enoch walked faithfully with God, then was no more because God took him away. Genesis 5.24. We might think of how the prophet Elijah was separated by Elisha with a chariot of fire and then 2 Kings 2 went up to heaven in a whirlwind and Elisha saw him no more. Jesus' ascension is his departure from his disciples. I think Jesus had already entered his glory. He had already been seated at the right hand of the Father. But here he takes his leave from his disciples. This is the last time they're going to see him like this. I want you to notice here, though, how the disciples have been changed. They've been enlightened by Jesus, but notice how else Jesus has changed them. Verse 52, what do the disciples do? They worshiped him. Who's him? Jesus. They worshiped Jesus. Wow, that's huge, okay? At the very end of the book, second to last verse, of Luke's book, we get this. His followers worshipped him. This is the first time, and it's the only time, in Luke's gospel that Jesus is worshipped. Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's because throughout much of Luke's gospel, it's very possible to see Jesus as nothing more than an extremely remarkable man. Perhaps even a direct creation of God in light of the Christmas story. Why would this passage be any different? Well, do you remember what the devil tempted Jesus to do at the very beginning of his ministry? In Luke chapter 4, the devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. What did Jesus say? He answered them, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do you see what this means? If it doesn't hit you like an 18-wheeler truck, it's only because we're so used to recognizing Jesus as divine. This was not always the case. In Luke's gospel, this might be the first time his disciples are finally recognizing this. This might be a new recognition for them. In the Easter story, their eyes are opened to who Jesus really is. He's changed them. They see him now as divine. Either because of how he opened their minds, or maybe because of his resurrection, or maybe because of both. We don't know. But they now see Jesus as divine, and they worship him. They worship Jesus. And that's not all. Luke says, Verse 52, that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Great joy. How could they not have great joy? Just hours ago, they thought 
Everything was lost. Their hopes had been completely crushed for this messianic kingdom that they had followed, followed the master around in anticipation of. They were utterly defeated. They were discouraged. Perhaps they were even afraid. But now Jesus has been raised from the dead. And now they see everything clearly. They see finally that this was all written about the Messiah. They see that Jesus has fulfilled it, that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one, the heir to David's eternal throne who would deliver God's people. The king has entered his glory. He's been seated at the right hand of God and there is hope of forgiveness and salvation for the nations. They're overwhelmingly happy. They're filled with joy. They're elated. They're beside themselves. And it's amazing. Do you remember what the shepherds or what the angels said to the shepherds back in Luke 2, the Christmas story, Luke 10? The angel said, I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all the people. When Jesus is born, when he comes into the world, the announcement is that there will be great joy. And now when Jesus leaves the world, what do the disciples have? Great joy. That's no doubt connected to what we see in the final verse when it says that they stayed continually at the temple. They met regularly at the temple praising God. They praise God. He deserves all of the praise for this. This was God's work. They praise him. They praise him. Enlightenment, worship of Jesus, great joy, and praise to God. That's how Jesus changed his disciples. He opened their eyes. They worship him. They're filled with great joy, and they're praising God. This is the perfect ending to Luke's gospel. <laughs> Interesting side note. His gospel started in the temple. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in the temple. And it ends again in the temple, now with his disciples praising God. It's a perfect ending for Luke in more ways than one. When Jesus departs from his disciples and the curtains, they come back over the stage. His followers are left with great joy, worshiping him and praising God. That's the right response, by the way, for all Christians to the Easter story. And you could say that's the right response to the entirety of the gospel, to the entirety of Luke's book. Here's the question for you. Is that your response? What is your response? How has the resurrected Jesus changed you? The application is very simple. How he changed them is how he should change you. See, the disciples saw him clearly. Do you see him clearly? Do you see him as the divine Messiah in fulfillment of the scriptures? I know most of you, if not all of you, would say absolutely yes, right? At least at an intellectual level. So the question for you becomes, well, how do you feel about that? Do you feel about it the same way they did? Are you filled with great joy? Are you moved to worship Jesus do you feel moved to praise God? This is a very crude example. But I want you to imagine if John MacArthur decided to run in the 2024 presidential election. 
John MacArthur, the great preacher, faithful, godly minister of Grace Community Church down south. Let's say he decides to run for office and he actually gets elected president of the United States. Amazing thought. He vowed to exercise the power of his office to abolish abortion and to restore the sanctity of marriage to the best of his ability. He would strengthen our military to protect us against our foreign adversaries. He would offer hope to people trying to come into our country while fixing the mess at the border at the same time. He would cut taxes. He would enact economic policies which would enable our country to flourish. How would you react if he was elected president of the United States? Would you be happy? Would you celebrate? Would you thank John MacArthur for running and for winning? Would you praise God for his sovereignty and bringing this to pass? Would you need someone to tell you to do those things? Probably not. You long for a godly man to be in a position of influence and power. You long for everything that that would mean for our country. And so when it happens, of course you have joy. Of course you praise God. And of course you value the man who did it. That's the natural response. Now, if that would be the effect of President MacArthur, a political savior, how much more so King Jesus, the savior of the world? A president sits in power in the White House. The Messiah is enthroned at the right hand of God in heaven. A president can establish justice in our country The Messiah will establish justice in the entire world. As the great Christmas hymn says, in his name, all oppression shall cease. A president might help save us from national enemies. The Messiah will save God's people from all their enemies. Human enemies, demonic enemies, even hell and death itself. A president can offer immigrants a better life in our country than in the one they came from. But the Messiah actually goes out to the nations to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness into his glorious kingdom of light forever, offering them not just a better life, offering them eternal life, perfect life. A president can help our country flourish economically. The Messiah brings a kingdom of absolutely unrivaled prosperity. No sickness, no suffering, no pain, No death, perfect bliss. You realize what the Easter story means that Jesus is the Messiah after all. Everything written about the Messiah in the scriptures was fulfilled in him. He was resurrected in fulfillment of the scriptures. He died in fulfillment of the scriptures. He entered his glory in fulfillment of the scriptures. How do you feel about that? John MacArthur is not going to be president. But Jesus is king. He really is the savior king, the Messiah that God's people have been waiting for. Rejoice. Worship him. Praise God for what he's done. How could you not? Here we are gathered on Sunday, the very day of the week in history that Jesus rose from the dead. We've traveled back in time We've experienced the Easter story and loose gospel together. 
We saw how Jesus changed. He was dead and now bodily restored to life. And how amazing it is to know that the way he changed is the way that you will be changed. We also saw how Jesus changed his disciples in the Easter story. He enlightened them and they worshiped him. They praised God and they were filled with great joy. And at least with regards to the joy and worship, the way he changed them is the way that he should change you right now. Your heart should be filled with great joy. You should feel moved to worship him. You should be moved to praise God for what he's done. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of very important areas that we need to grow in as a church. The series is going to be called Following Jesus. We're going to consider specifically what it means to follow Jesus as a member of a local church. I hope your encounter with Jesus in Luke's gospel over the past few weeks has helped you know him. Knowing Jesus is key to following Jesus. Knowing Jesus is what should move you to follow Jesus. And I pray that even today as you consider the glorious ending to Luke's gospel, that you would know Jesus as he is, the divine Messiah resurrected from the dead, that you would rejoice and worship him. And may our worship of the risen king move you to be faithful to his word. Let's pray that end right now. We do praise you, Father, for raising the Son, and we worship you, Jesus, for being the Messiah that you are, the divine Messiah that you are, resurrected from the dead. We ask right now, Father, that these hearts of worship and of praise and of joy would compel us to follow you, whatever the cost. They would strive to be obedient to your word and that you would be greatly glorified in our lives. You are so worthy of it. It's in your name we pray all these things, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.